Welcome to the Oh My God podcast, season two, with your co-hosts, Zelda Lebowitz and Hannah Rachel Cohen Portnoy. In season one, the podcast aimed to talk about success in the face of failure, modern Judaism, and real life. Season two will deliver the same message, but even more potently. Zelda and Hannah Rachel have individually and collectively been challenged by the Jewish system they grew up in. Through their evolution, through their questions, failures, mistakes, and heartbreaks, they've begun to untangle much of what was keeping them in survival mode so they could truly be set free to thrive. This is what they'll dissect each week with you, the Jewish journey, real, raw, and vulnerable. Because that is the only thing that can truly change lives and maybe even save them. You're only one episode away from being more honest with yourself. Thank you, Allison, for taking the time to be here. Um, it means a lot. We're very excited to have this conversation, this really important conversation with you. Thank you. Sure. Sure. Um, so I guess to kick off this episode, we'd love to, um, if you could give us a little background as to uh, what you do, how you got into it, who you are. Um, so for anyone who doesn't know you yet, uh, could, could learn. Yes. So my name is Allison Josephs. I'm the founder and director of Jew in the City. Uh, Jew in the City is a nonprofit whose mission is to change negative perceptions about Orthodox Jews. Um, I got into this work originally because I was raised to hate Orthodox Jews myself. Um, I was raised as a proud conservative Jew in New Jersey, um, but I didn't know any Orthodox Jews growing up. And from the things I heard from my father who had Orthodox patients and the things I saw in the news and on TV shows and movies, I was sure that the Orthodox community was extreme, backwards, misogynistic, uh, really just like too much. Uh, like it was good to be Jewish, but not too Jewish. Um, and the Orthodox, you know, were kind of like spoiling things and ruining things for the rest of us normal Jews. Um, and when I was eight, a father in my school went crazy, killed both of his kids and himself. Um, and so this basically took this like upper middle class, like kind of all American, uh, you know, secular Jewish life that I had and kind of turned it on its head because after this tragedy happened, I started having very big questions about why I exist and if there's a meaning to life and, you know, a purpose in the universe. And while my parents had wisdom for this world and advice on how to be successful here, uh, they had nothing to offer me in terms of spirituality. And so I started having trouble sleeping at night. Uh, I started suffering from minor panic attacks here and there uh, for about seven years until I um, met an Orthodox teacher at an after-school Hebrew high. My parents sent us there, not because they wanted us to become more observant, but because we had to meet a nice Jewish boy so that we could have our bacon cheeseburgers with um, and have two to three Jewish kids to do the same thing with them. Um, and because of the Holocaust and the Spanish Inquisition, and um, it was really about guilt as opposed to actually meaning. So um, it was because I had my own negative experience and then saw such a different experience as I started to learn myself that I felt like... Um, it was time to change the narrative. It was time to stop relying on traditional media's very narrow and very negative take and offer a broader and more nuanced conversation. Wow. Incredible. Yeah. So how, how, how does your Jewish life present itself today different? Obviously conservative and modern Orthodox, Orthodox is very different, but how does it present itself today? And how, um, and how do you sort of, yeah, and how does it how does it present itself today? Yeah, so um, 
I was very confused about where I should end up religiously, to be honest, because when I was conservative, um, it was kind of like the people that knew something and the people that knew even less. And we were the people that knew even less. Um, and so there wasn't such a like divide within the conservative movement. When I got to orthodoxy, not only was there like a lot of different choices, I found that everybody wanted me to be just like them, which was very confusing and it felt almost like an agenda. Um, and so I would meet modern people who told me, you know, be modern, Haredim are crazy. And I would meet Haredim who would tell me be Haredi, modern or lazy. And I would meet Lubavitchers who would tell me Chabad is the way to go. <laughs> That's it. And then it was sort of like, well, who do I trust? Um, and I spent a summer studying in Israel um, the summer before my senior, uh, my freshman year of college. Um, and it was a very left wing orthodox program. And I was visiting all sorts of different families while I was there. And I was just crying every day and so confused because I felt like I finally found my way here. Um, I skipped a big part of my story, which is I was in Hawaii when I was 16 and I saw a tree in a tropical rainforest and realized that there's like a creator of the universe, but short interview. Um, so I felt like I sort of had this journey of like searching of pain, of discovery, of connection, of just wanting to be close to this like presence that I felt sort of permeating throughout the universe, which I realize is God. Mm. And then there were all these details about like, how do you, you know, dress and, you know, kind of what level do you keep? And it was very confusing. And at the end of the summer of confusion going into college, we were staying in spot on a Shabbaton with this program. And there was a very Haredi mystical spot family. Um, and the woman told me, um, some really amazing advice. She didn't try to convince me to move to Svat and become a Haredi woman myself. She said there were 12 tribes. They each had their own way, go find yours. Um, and that was really one of the most incredible um, and empowering lessons I learned on my personal journey because it wasn't that this way is better than that way. It's that there are many ways to serve God um, and you have to find the way that speaks to your soul. Um, and so with that empowerment, um, I was able to, have the confidence to go out and see what worked for me. And for me personally, um, I was very happy in American culture. Um, I didn't have any, I know for some people, I think their lives are full of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I was this young goody two shoes. Like I started like the modern science club and the debate club in my school. So I didn't like have some wild path to run from. I basically wanted to take who I was and just make sort of just an improved version of it, just to be a nicer person, a more holy person, to sort of follow the rules that I was supposed to. And so I found within the modern Orthodox world, um, the right wing portion that culturally was a very good fit for someone growing up, not religious, but um, was a group of people that were interested in being consistent um, and growth oriented. And so that's kind of the, the universe that I found myself in. But at the same time, I'm having an appreciation for every group, understanding every group has its challenges, including my own, and also learning to see the beautiful tapestry that is Claudia Israel. Mm. Wow. And talking about challenges, what what would you say is, you know, this podcast is all about um, talking about our challenges because realizing that it really is a catalyst for our growth. Uh, you know, if we consciously allow allow to allow ourselves to grow from and learn from the challenges, what would you say is a challenge that you went through or are are going through, still going through, or you know, something that that you you struggle with or have struggled with that. Um, you know, can help us um, into our own struggles. So I would say that existential 
struggle and crisis that I went through from, you know, eight to 16 was probably like my biggest sort of struggle as a human being. Um, the journey to become observant also was very fraught, as I described before, just sort of not understanding where I belonged. Um, I would say professionally, you know, um, one of the things that I came up against in growing an organization was lack of confidence in uh, being able to fundraise, being able to, I sort of saw myself as a content creator um, and like a personality, but there's a very serious side you have to take to running a, a business or an organization that's going to be successful. If you want donors to take you uh, seriously, you have to take yourself seriously like that. Uh, I ended up getting an executive coach. I went to a nonprofit um, course to learn how to uh, lead a nonprofit. Because for, I would say for the first several years of running this organization, first, I was scared to even file as a 501c3 because it just seemed like, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, then we got seed money and it was sort of like time to really, you know, figure out what I was doing and learn to take myself to seri more seriously. And a couple of my female board members who are very impressive leaders themselves kind of gave me a little bit of a kick in the tuchus. And they're like, enough of the cutesy stuff, Allison, of like, I'm not saying, saying you don't know how to do it or, you know, not not trying. Um, I would say the challenge in running an organization was I had this like deathly fear of asking people for money, but you can't continue to grow programming unless you have funds to do it. Um, and so I think kind of like conf uh, confronting that fear um, oh. and, you know, sort of facing it head on and not saying to myself again and again, I can't fundraise. I don't know how, or like apologizing to people. If I ask them for money, I do that all the time. Now I see people do that. I'm like, come on, like pick your, pull yourself together. Like um, when I was on that side of it, I couldn't believe that like the thing that I loved most, which was inspiring other Jews and helping them find meaning in their life because I had been searching in for mine. I couldn't believe that I couldn't do that unless I did the thing that I hated most, which was asking someone to write me a check. And it was sort of like a do or die. Like if I'm going to succeed in this business and this organization, I'm going to have to get myself together. And it really came down to learning the skills, which is like having a clear mission statement, understanding what your programs are, understanding what your metrics are, understanding what your cost is, and sort of having the confidence to be able to give that over to, you know, a prospective donor. And I sat down at a donor meeting a few years ago and a very well-known philanthropist in the firm world said to me, you're an excellent fundraiser. And that was sort of like a, whoa, for all those years of, of doubting myself. So wow. I would say um, when you, for the, sometimes in life, the things you have to get over, the things you're most afraid of are sometimes the things you need to move forward in the stuff that you love and you're passionate about. Um, and I would say like face those fears head on. There's only so much you can do of making excuses or, you know, kind of running away from the thing you have to face. Um, but for me, that was um, sort of an important thing. And also um, not letting like the haters get you down, um, you know, having an online platform, um, you're open to everyone's opinions um, and people have a lot of opinions in the oh. world. Um, and um, I remember I got a particular email one time that was just like so mean spirited and like really kind of like pulled me down. And I was thinking about how even Moshe Rabbeinu had haters. Like here, he was literally appointed by God himself. Um, and there was Korach to tell him, who do you think you are? I mean, he was jealous of him. Um, and he was trying to like, you know, cut down his leadership. But what I saw is that like with leadership comes dissent, with leadership comes haters. And so I'm not going to do better than Moshe. I'm not appointed by God. <laughs> I appointed <sighs> myself. I, I saw an opening. I stepped up to the plate. 
um, with leadership comes dissent. And sort of once I came to realize that there's no way to do this without having someone hate you and tell you how much they hate you, um, I kind of got over it because it's like, again, one direction or the other, either keep going and recognize that this is part of the journey or just quit. Well, wow. you sound like a powerhouse. Uh, and I try <laughs> to understand that you recognize the greatness of the, of the goal as your catalysts for fundraising, you know, like you have a mission and you have a purpose and you're plowing through and, and it took it's sort of like, it sounds like it eliminated your fear in the process. Um, I, I, I just want to go back because I know like I kind of jumped ahead a little bit, but it does sound like an interesting story how you, what your process was um, going from the conservative movement sort of into um, orthodoxy and how that, how you relate, how, where was Hashem in that whole process? Yes. Yeah, so um, I didn't believe in God. Um, you know, I, there was really no God in my life growing up. Um, like being Jewish for us was like blocks and bagels. And my mother would point out how many Nobel laureates and doctors and lawyers were Jewish and Jewish humor. Um, and then like kind of all the guilt that was sort of like most of my Jewish, there was certainly some sense of like pride, but like not based on Torah, not based on a connection to Hashem. And um, when I would have these panic attacks or sort of sit up and consider the fact that like um, I was headed towards my demise um, and I was either gonna go somewhere or nowhere for all of eternity, um, I would really become very overwhelmed. More about mental health uh, through our Makom branch. We have a branch um, for uh, sort of former and questioning Jews who had bad experiences growing up religious. I can talk about that soon, but I've learned a lot more about this since then. But I realized that, that panic attacks I would feel my soul sort of like fly out of my body, which I thought was me just, um, you know, realizing that like nothing is real, nothing in this world is actually like here, it's all just an illusion. That was actually myself trying to comfort myself, disassociate with sort of the panic of not knowing if there's an end. But sort of the, the quick version of this Hawaii story is that when um, I was 16, my parents sent us to this after school Hebrew high, and this teacher was talking about trusting in God and seeing God in nature. And I didn't know what he was talking about at all, but he was saying a lot of smart things and he was teaching us Pirkei Avos. It was the first time I was learning Jewish texts and I really found it meaningful. Um, and that winter break, we took a week long trip in Hawaii and I started noticing, you know, sunsets and flowers and trees. And the last day we were there, we drove through a tropical rainforest where Jurassic Park was filmed. Um, and, you know, as we were walking through the forest, I noticed these bamboo shoots. They had these green and gold vertical striped lines. Now, the fascinating thing is that um, two really crazy things happened. We went back to Hawaii this summer. Uh, so I showed my kids these trees. So they got to see after like a lifetime of hearing about it. And they're like, this is the dream of it. Uh, the other thing is that we just went through old family movies. And my father was actually filming me as I asked him this question I'm about to tell you which is that the lines on these bamboo looked so much like paintbrush strokes. They weren't straight stripes. They kind of had like, um, they sort of had like a, a brush look to them and they sort of like ended here and one started there. There was nothing about them that was sort of like, you know, you think in nature, you're going to see perfect straight lines and stripes and some sort of symmetry. There was no symmetry there. It really looked like blotches and splotches and lines that started and stopped without yes. any rhyme or reason. So I came up to this bamboo and I said, do you think someone painted this on? So I just watched that video at my parents' house recently. Um, and my father wasn't taking me seriously. He put down the camera and then I sort of had my moment where he came over and he said, yeah, they're definitely painted on. They're too imperfect to be natural. 
And I looked at the top and I saw these lines go all the way up 50 feet of bamboo shoot. And I muttered to myself, wow, God has quite a paintbrush. And then I was like, wait, what just happened? I don't believe in God. And I sort of shook off the weirdness of the moment. And I took a few more steps. And then we came to like the trees that I also showed my children. They're called rainbow eucalyptus. Smooth bark, lavender background, and pink and green and blue swirled lines all over them. You can go to my um, Instagram. In the end of July, we went to the road to Hana to see both of these things again. Um, I was convinced that someone had painted the trees in the forest. And my mother said to me, no, Allison, look to the top. And again, I looked all the way up. And for this brief moment, it was as if I understood the entire universe. I can't put into words what exactly it is that I experienced there, but it was sort of for just a brief moment, this moment of clarity where I felt from every comet to every caterpillar, everything had its place and everything had its time. Um, And sort of that feeling of unity um, made me realize that like there is this unified force that exists throughout all of creation. And that must be what they say, what they mean when they, when they say God, Years later, I learned the Shema. I always knew the Shema, but I never learned the meaning behind the Shema. Um, and my teacher in Israel said that when we say Hashem Echad, we're not saying that God is one, like the number one. We're saying that God is Achdus, that God is the unity of all things. And as he uttered these words, I realized this is what I discovered in that rainforest. I discovered Hashem's unity over all of existence. And so my connection to Judaism to an observant life really began through the vehicle of connecting to Hashem. I was in the middle of a non-Jewish, very waspy preppy school. I went to school with like Johnson and Johnson heirs and like really old, rich Christian money. Um, And that was sort of like, there were like, you know, a good amount of Jews that went there also to kind of be in that upper crust type of life. And the goal was Ivy League and, you know, certain career, um, and nothing spiritual, no spiritual um, sense of success at all. And so my becoming observant in the middle of a school like this was very weird. Um, but I didn't have a community. I it was really first me and Hashem. Um, and then only later did I realize there's this beautiful thing to like, you know, be Jewish with community. But for me, Shabbos, for the first many months of Shabbos was just me being alone and trying to not touch buttons because I didn't actually know how to keep Shabbos. I just knew I wasn't supposed to, you know, touch things on Shabbos. Well. Wow. wow, that's incredible and so powerful. I wonder, like, that's, you know, that's like an enlightening experience, like not many of us experience, especially if you're raised religious or if, you know, you were, you know, brought up in a, in a certain way to have that personal enlightening connection and relationship with Hashem is 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 rare and it's so beautiful and so powerful. How would you say, like, do you, have a way where you try to um, integrate that type of inspiration to your daily life now, even while while it has maybe become more habitual and maybe more, you know, regular for you? Yeah, I would say just sort of talking to Hashem throughout the day um, and, you know, trying to look for the Hashgacha throughout the day. Um, and certainly, you know, when there are challenges in front of me, um, sort of you know, that feeling that I think really was such a shift for me was um, that sense of just this enveloping, like warmth and hug. Like, thank God I got that from my parents. And so I had a sense of that type of um, love, you know, in this world. And, you know, to speak to um, the other work that we're doing for the 
you know, people that are leaving, we're seeing hundreds of people who have left, you know, the Haredi world, Hasidic, uh, Yeshivish, Lubavitch. What it seems like a big underlying theme is that there is a lack of that sense of feeling that sense of being held, seen, um, you know, sort of encircled and encompassed with love. So I did have that model growing up for my flesh and blood parents. What I felt in that forest was that sort of sense of enveloping love, maybe the Shrina um, in that rainforest. And I would say to sort of in these moments of life when there are challenges, when you, you know, I have four kids, Kanainahara, there's all different stresses that come up in life. My mother has cancer. Um, to kind of continue to um, sort of view Hashem in that uh, role of protector, surrounder of love, um, sort of trusting in the plan. I mean, it sounds, you know, very like things you hear. I don't know if I have any Kiddush like that, but continuing to sort of relate um, to God in that way of a loving um, and attentive parent. And, you know, I may not always get the answers that I want, but, um, you know, to try to live ongoing uh, with, with that type of, um, I would say sort of like symbol of seeing Hashem in that way. Mm, wow, so incredible. I really have got the chills hearing your story. It's fascinating. And really, it sounds to me like it was like a prophetic moment. And that really was the catalyst to your entire journey and to really what you do today and who you are today. And, uh, so that kind of leads us to our, our, my, our next question. Um, we know that every, you know, all the challenges and difficulties that we face here in this world is really ultimately a gift from Hashem. So what would you say um, are some of the challenges that, you know, or a challenge that you've gone through and like to turn it around, to transform that, to, uh, you know, share with us how it actually is a gift for you in your life? So um, I would say, you know, for in the professional sense, I started Jew in the City to show um, the beauty of um, orthodoxy. My whole life up until that point that I had this sort of transformative moment and I started to meet Orthodox Jews up close and personal, I had very negative opinions. And then I came in and I had very positive opinions. Um, and as I started putting out positivity about Orthodoxy on social media, um, not surprisingly, people that had very different opinions started coming out of the woodwork and started calling me a liar and a whitewasher and telling me that I was crazy. Um, and that was very challenging to not think that I'm a liar or a whitewasher, you know, believe that I'm telling the truth as I understand it and, you know, um, be challenged like this and, um, you know, sort of publicly insulted like this. And what I did was um, I started to learn more and I started to sort of broaden my perspective and realize that there are experiences bigger than what I've seen just because I've seen communities different than my own doesn't mean that I've seen life experiences, you know, outside of the people that I've met. Um, in 2014, an ex-Hasidic couple came to one of my outreach talks and instead of calling me a liar and a whitewasher, they said, we like your version of orthodoxy more than what we were raised with. Can you help us fit into your kind of world? And I did not know Yiddish um, more than like, you know, oy vey. Um, and I did not really understand where they were coming from. I mean, really at that point, I thought they wanted to not wear stockings, to trim their beard. I didn't understand what exactly they were going through. Um, but I sort of said, you know, sure, come for Shabbos, come meet my friends and my rabbi. Um, I'll, I'll show you what my world looks like. And this became what our we now call Makom, which is one of our branches. Our our media branch, we call Keter, which is sort of to restore the Keter Shem Tov of the Frim community. And this branch that we made for people who had left um, is called Makom. And as I've seen these stories of, you know, all sorts of abuse and dysfunction and some of the problems systemic, some of the problems, you know, in schools, some of the problems in the Shidduch system and the Kala classes, 
um, it was a humbling experience. I actually wrote um, an apology article um, to the people that had experienced the underbelly of the Orthodox world because I realized that um, I was I was naive. I was young. I had seen only what I had seen. I thought that I could describe that and. It's hurtful to people that have experienced something so differently, and it's called orthodox. And here's someone out there saying how great it is, and it was something that was used as a weapon against you. That's really hurtful. It wasn't done on purpose, but uh, nevertheless, it was done. And so I wrote an apology. In fact, we changed our mission statement. Our mission statement used to be breaking down stereotypes, um, and we actually left the word stereotypes. We went instead to, to perceptions, to associations, because we didn't want to invalidate the experiences of people that actually oh. had these negative experiences. So um, I would say, you know, learning humility in a growth, like uh, as you grow and get older, um, is an important part of, you know, kind of uh, being bigger than you were before. What has come out of Makom, not only are we getting to show people what happens when you're around healthy people? What happens when you look at Jewish sources from a place of seicha? Um, and we, you know, decided that our sort of values as an organization are menschlichkeit, erlichkeit, and seicha. If Yiddishkeit doesn't have menschlichkeit, erlichkeit, and seicha, kindness, tolerance, sincerity, and critical thinking is how we say it in English, um, then it will be a very lousy experience. So when we get to show our members um, what Yiddishkeit looks like with those uh, values in it, um, it's so transformative when we help them see that, you know, their sense of feeling silent and um, invisible and, you know, unloved is not because of Judaism, but because their parents had experienced these types of holes in their upbringing. And this is what intergenerational trauma does to some family lines. Um, and they can separate that out. They can now experience Shabbos for the first time. Um, oh. feeling loved, feeling not judged, feeling wholly accepted. Um, there was something beautiful about showing the first Shabbos to someone who had never experienced Shabbos before. My, you know, kind of background to see someone where, you know, learning Torah, uh, prayer, Shabbos were actually torturous experiences that were weaponized against them to help them now sort of take these experiences with a fresh set of eyes and a fresh, you know, sort of look at them and have them be comforted by the things that used to torture them. Um, it's really incredible. But what I had to do was, um, you know, kind of like be willing to uh, realize that I don't know everything and do some listening. And look, the truth is that the people that approached me and didn't insult me were much easier to listen to. The people that just came out and just screamed things at me and told me how dumb I was, that's not really a great way to have a communication. To have someone come out um, is just sort of another life lesson. If you want to get through to someone, you know, um, speak to them as if they're a decent person and they've misunderstood as opposed to they're, you know, some low life um, and are, are, you know, maliciously doing someone wrong, something wrong. This right. um, Malcolm journey then led us to our final branch, which is called Tikkun. And we're now looking at what are the systemic issues that exist in our community that make people's Jewish experience negative that, you know, create negative media around us. Um, what, what is it in, you know, what has happened um, that we can fix behind the scenes so that people don't feel the need to run, so that people don't, you know, um, feel the need to talk about how bad it is. Ultimately, if Jews are feeling good and happy and held and loved, um, then they can be happy as they are, you know, being Jewish. Yeah. Wow. Wow, that's so powerful. Um, can imagine how healing that is to watch and observe, but how much it is to actually experience when, like you said, what 
actually felt like poison to them um, is their medicine and and just having being involved in that process is is amazing so really really thank you for for creating that and, and creating such important change and um, to end this incredible incredible um, conversation and hearing your your insights what could, what is something that you could share and leave our listeners with that they could um, hopefully implement into their life uh, you know right now maybe something small maybe something big um, that will help them you know accelerate their growth and just grow and maybe somehow that they could deal with their challenges um, in a more you know feasible way you know I think it really depends on sort of what angle you're coming from um, if you feel like and the thing that I've discovered about growing up with dysfunction is that um, a lot of the people are unaware that they grew up with dysfunction um, or they um, if they know that they did they don't want to admit it to themselves or to other people so I think the first thing is you know trying to do a, a reasonable assessment um, in terms of did you have a healthy childhood do you, do you trust most people? Do you feel secure? Like, can you rest in yourself? Um, do you think that the world is mostly good? Are you able to receive love from other people? If the answer is yes to those things, then likely you have secure attachment. And then if you want to grow, uh, something that I have done before is his photo deuce. Before I go to sleep at night um, and say shma, sort of having a freestyle chat with Hashem and sort of saying what's on my mind. That's sort of been a way to kind of bring in a daily um, connection like that to kind of go over yeah. my day. Um, if you didn't answer yes to those questions about secure attachment, then that's what needs to happen before anything spiritual happens. Um, I thought I was being clever one time in seminary um, and I thought I was going to stump my rabbi and I said, I know you're supposed to love your neighbor as much as yourself. What if you don't love yourself at all? You're supposed to love your neighbor as little as you love yourself. And he right. said to me, stop. The Torah is meant for healthy people. And this was such a like, like uh, also kind of like a big moment for me to realize that like, we're not chayiv in these mitzvot. If we're not, you have to be a mensch before you're a yid. You have to be a, a sort of a shalim and whole person before you can even take these things on in a healthy way. If you don't have a basic foundation of healthiness um, and, you know, I was thinking like in terms of the Aseris Adibros, the, the Ten Commandments. The first commandment that doesn't even seem like a commandment, Hashem says, I'm, I'm Hashem, your God. Before we even get to commandments, we need to know who am I? Do I feel like I exist? Do I have, like, like do I, I feel like I can say this is who I am? I feel sort of stable in, in my personhood. If you're lacking that, the spiritual stuff is coming for later. You have to do the mental health work first. You have to learn to love yourself. You have to heal those childhood wounds. Um, and and that, that's the first part of your spiritual journey is to heal yourself as a person. Because the thing is that God wants us v'chaibahim. He wants us to live by these laws and not die by them. And if you are doing these mitzvot or halachos um, without that basic foundation of your personhood and a love for yourself, um, they will be poison to you in many cases. Wow. And so wow. that, that has to be the foundation first before you add that in. So it really depends on where are you coming from? I think sadly in our generation, there's a lot of insecure attachment and we must heal that for ourselves because if we don't heal for ourselves, it will not be there for our children. We will keep repeating these same, uh, you know, emotional neglect um, and secure uh, attachment wounds generation after generation until we do that healing work. Yeah, wow. absolutely. What? 
what a true message and what it's that's so inspiring and yeah I, I love I love that little chutzpah you had with your uh, teacher. <laughs> but, but at the end of the day, it's really, it's a, it was a good question. It's a good question. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't trying to be, I, I thought that I, it was a very valid um, question. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much, Allison, for taking the time to share. This was so powerful. Uh, I really, really appreciate it. And um, have, have an amazing day. Yeah. Thanks so much. You too. Thank you. Bye. Great chatting. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of the Oh My God podcast. Make sure you hit subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform so you don't miss any of our upcoming interviews. If this episode spoke to you, please share it with someone you believe would love it just as much as you did and rate the podcast five stars so we can continue to make content like this for you. Do you have a question, suggestion, or interview request? Shoot us an email to omgpod at gmail.com. That's omgpod spelled O-H-E-M-G-E-E-P-O-D at gmail.com. We're so excited to hear what you think and cannot wait for you to tune in next week. Until then, shalom.